It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. It was a tale of espionage and intrigue. It's pure obfuscation on the part of uh, the Clinton campaign. Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort denied accusations Sunday that Donald Trump is being aided by an old Cold War rival. It's absurd uh, and you know, there's no basis to it. But behind closed doors, Russian intelligence knew just how to play the media in a liberal democracy. And that is a tale as old as time. Thomas Ridd, a world-renowned academic on national security and intelligence, wrote a new book called Active Measures, tracing the secret history of psychological warfare over a century. On this week's episode, we have him on the show. I'm Ben Maku, and you're listening to Cyber. So Thomas, thanks so much for coming on the pod. Pleasure. I interviewed you a few years ago for Cyber War. I don't know if you remember, in Berlin, or was it in London? It was in, in London. London. Oh, really? Yeah, in the middle of an apartment uh, complex. Oh, yes, of course I do remember that in the Barbican. Yeah, that was t- wasn't that yeah. a TV interview though? It was a TV interview. It was not a, a, pand- a time of pandemic um, mutual uh, recording. <laughs> <laughs> Hundreds of miles apart. Um, different times, different times when we could uh, be near each other. <laughs> yes, indeed. So you come out with a great new book, Active Measures. Why don't you tell me a little bit about this? Because obviously disinformation and intelligence agencies, big topic of conversation in the last few years. But something that your book is also making very clear is that this is not something that's completely new. Yeah, so I was, when this news broke of the 2016 election interference uh, back in June uh, 2016, I was just in the middle of investigating, just had finished a major investigation of a Russian hacking campaign known as Moonlight Maze. So I was, I was pretty watching ongoing Russian hacking and intrusion activity as closely as I could from my vantage point. And I was talking to a number of people in the uh, um, private sector and in government about this. And then when the first Gutschiffer 2 leak broke, when CrowdStrike published their first blog post uh, about the DNC hack, as it's become known, um, it was clear from day one. And I mean, literally from the first, immediately after looking at the evidence that it was a Russian uh, operation, the forensic evidence was just overwhelming. Um, But I realized over the next couple of, um, and it became clear very quickly that the story was massive, would redefine InfoSec in a way. And very quickly, I, I realized uh, after reading some history uh, books that the most important aspect to understand what was really going on was not the forensic evidence, but history. Uh, so, you know, literally on my way to testifying in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee, I stopped and interviewed a Cold War defector in Massachusetts, Ladislav Bittman, was his name in the Cold War. Um, he later changed his name. He um, And he just talking with him was more illuminating than, you know, tracking Russian hacking operations. So I thought I just have to write a history book here. And I love that kind of approach going straight from the beginning, because obviously there is a lot of revealing things that have happened recently, but quite often 
I think people, especially in cybersecurity and in modern history, tend to think that everything's happening for the first time now. But when you look back on the history of Russian disinformation, for example, it goes back all the way back to even the, the czarist Okhrana. Yeah, so I, I, I decided to start with, uh, in the interwar period, with uh, modern disinformation campaigns uh, pioneered by Felix Dzerzhinsky um, and Operation Trust, which is my first uh, chapter, which is a sort of a fake monarchist organization to lure the exiled um, Russian monarch monarchists into complacency, ultimately. I started with that story because it's the first time that we see um, in the 20th, 20, 20th century an intelligence organization really turning this information into a bureaucratic, organized, professional uh, discipline. That's fascinating. And I mean, the Soviet Union throughout that interwar period, did they ever target the United States? There's this one episode, um, which uh, is, in fact, my second chapter, the, the Whalen forgeries. There's a forgery uh, popping up in New York City that ultimately leads to the fall of the New, uh, New York police commissioner at the time, Grover Whalen. And very quickly, um, he thinks this is a Russian-Soviet um, operation, a disinformation operation to... Um, Actually, he doesn't believe it's disinformation. He thinks it's real. Uh, he thinks the Reds have been fomenting uh, strikes and violence in the early Depression timeframe, that would be. And uh, his opponents claim he's been tricked. And this was all just a ruse. And indeed, it appears that we're looking here at a um, monarchist uh, deception operation <laughs> to undermine the recognition of the Soviet Union as a, as a, as a, as a new state by the US government. Um, so, you know, there are many histories here and small stories here that haven't never really been covered in, in depth in my book. So I'm telling in a way a really forgotten history. And uh, many of the investigations that I had to do felt like trying to attribute a an operation based on very old um, uh, forensic evidence. For example, in congressional hearings and a track down a forgery on the front page of the Forward, which was a Yiddish newspaper, still is a Yiddish newspaper in New York City. Um, and uh, and I had to, for this one case, I had to decipher uh, smeared print in a Cyrillic letterhead, letterhead uh, that was published in 1930. Uh, so uh, one of my favorite little details is that a Kaspersky researcher helped me understand this 1930s forgery. <laughs> So, I mean, suffice it to say, Russian disinformation campaigns in the United States are nothing new. Uh, that is, I mean, obviously, it's a trite cliche among historians that there's nothing new under the sun. And that is not, not accurate. There are new things here that I think uh, are important to point out. And knowing the history helps us to really see what is actually new. So, for example, one thing that I find uh, fascinating is to see that the quality of the tradecraft that we see, that we saw in 2016, certainly, the GRU operations, but also internet research agency, uh, you know, trolling and fake accounts and that kind of thing. The quality of the tradecraft was really quite bad, which is why we discovered it so quickly. Um, the big $64,000 question is, have we missed major operations that were executed with much better tradecraft in 2016. So you think possibly there were 
bigger operations that we just didn't we didn't recognize as possibly this kind of intrusion by Russian agents. You know, you know we have one of the most disturbing experiences in researching my book was to go through uh, KGB, uh, Stasi, Czech intelligence, STB, and also Bulgarian intelligence files, um, and to look at the the annual active measures plans that these intelligence organizations internally agreed on. So Stasi and KGB, for example, would meet on a regular basis and agree on a on a to-do list of disinformation campaigns for the coming year, and actually a couple of years down the road. And when I read these plans, sometimes I would like recognize or spot a book title, say, and then I would go on Amazon or Abe Books and uh, search for the book. And there it was. And, you know, I, suddenly I was the only person knowing that the Washington Post reviewed a fake KGB book, not noticing that it was a fake KGB book in the 1970s. So we, my point here is that we uncovered many operations only years after the fact. Uh, mm. I don't think it's unthinkable that we will uncover operations that happened in 2016 only years after the fact. That's fascinating. I mean, so l- let me ask you, what, what did you, what to you, what is what are some of the takeaways of the 2016 DNC hack that now can be applied to, or some lessons that we've learned from it that could now be applied to what we're going to see or what we're maybe seeing currently when it comes to the 2020 election that's, you know, now only really only months away. Yeah. Uh, so I, th- I feel I should just add for the record here, we call it always the DNC hack, but really it was not just the DNC hack. In fact, the DNC wasn't even the most important target. That's Julian Assange, WikiLeaks founder, denying again that he received leaked DNC emails from the Russian government. This morning, President-elect Trump is tweeting about it, saying, Julian Assange said a 14-year-old could have hacked Podesta. Why was DNC so careless? He also said the Russian government is dismissing any involvement in the election hack. In the very first leak of the 2016 season, which became public about a week before um, the Gochifer 2 account even popped up on DC Leaks. It's just that nobody noticed. DC Leaks also was a Russian uh, GRU front account website. Um, the very first leak there on Hillary Clinton um, purported to come from Hillary Clinton, but in fact was taken from John Podesta's inbox. So the first material from John Podesta's inbox hit the public domain in early June 2016, not in October. Then more material from John Podesta's inbox uh, was published on Gutschiffer 2. They just claimed it came from the DNC or from Hillary Clinton directly, but it did not come from them directly. It came from John Podesta's inbox, which we can show now um, with high confidence. So really, I think we have to revisit the story of 2016 and understand it for what it was. It was that there were significant amounts of forgeries and false claims not so much in the content, but in the framing built into this uh, built into this entire story. I always do think that it, it was clearly like the Podesta emails was the most, I mean, it was definitely the most damning section of it. But do you think also just to focus just on the DNC leaks, there's there were so many different targets and different people involved. It seemed like, you know, do you have any any sense of how many people in Russia were involved with this entire operation? 
because it seems much more vast than I think we even like to admit. Yeah, um, it's important to distinguish between the hack and leak uh, part component of the operation, which is tied to mostly uh, to specific GRU units that we can identify today. And on the other side, the Internet Research Agency, the IRA, trolling and, 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 and social media influence campaigns. The special counsel's investigation, the, the Mueller uh, team, um, in my opinion, rather counterproductively, began their series of indictments with the IRA indictment, the Internet Research Agency indictment. That then created an incredible amount of press coverage and tension and congressional interest. But um, but in fact, it was misleading because the IRA was the least, not the most effective component of the wider 2016 interference operation. So here, I think we have an important lesson that is that our perception of an operation is ultimately becoming part of that operation. If we overestimate the impact of a specific uh, entity, and we certainly, in my analysis, certainly overestimate the impact of the IRA, then we ultimately create that impact for them. The, the most extraordinary piece of evidence that I have here is this image that um, you may recall, this, this, this cartoon that the IRA put out as an ad um, when the Jesus versus Satan arm wrestling match. Do you recall that? Yes, yes, I do. Where it says, if if Satan wins, Clinton wins, um, like to support Trump or something like that. That ad mm -hmm. is widely known. The, the, Democrat, the, the House Intelligence Committee, um, that the Democrats uh, showed it on the House floor, uh, the New York Times covered it prominently. Um, but in fact, the ad only received 71 impressions and 14 clicks when it was posted. That is... Nothing. The entire impact of that ad is a second-order impact uh, created in the conversation about disinformation. I agree completely because I think sometimes this idea that Russian trolls have completely manipulated American minds is completely and utterly overblown. I think even when you see some of it, uh, which I've reviewed in the past, some of it seems like it's it's grammatically incorrect. It's clearly it's not done by anybody very professionally, and it doesn't seem like it actually worked. I know that that there were cases of of people meeting up and, and, and going to certain rallies based off of Russian coordination from the troll farm. Yeah. But it always seemed to me like the, the most, you know, impressive and I, you know, former NSA and CIA director, Michael Hayden said this to me once that, you know, hats off to the Russians because the hack and dump of Podesta's emails was probably the single most successful disinformation operation in modern spy history. And I, I think that, that that was the thing that really, it stuck, right? Because it was, it also seemed to be something that led with, led with the, tr the truth to some extent, but framed it untruthfully. And I, it seems to me like that was the most effective part of this whole thing. Some of the biggest leaks that, uh, some of the most successful operations um, were operations that were mostly uh, correct in terms of content. I think the most successful, most damaging intelligence leak of the entire Cold War was um, 
taken from an from an actual KGB spy, Robert Lee Johnson, who took photograph of photographs of highly classified top secret um, documents in Paris in the early 1960s. And KGB then recycled uh, these uh, pictures and these these documents, uh, approximately 120 pages of nuclear targeting lists and uh, emergency and uh, contingency war planning for special forces in Europe, um, recycled this leak more than 20 times over, over the next 15 years and sometimes added some forged content, exaggerating the war plans that actually were on their own pretty uh, damaging. Um, and uh, so we, they have learned to, and this is really a lesson for 2020 in my mind, historically Russian intelligence agencies have become very good at feeding information to journalists. So this entire focus on social media is a distraction. It's almost, it's almost a cover behind which it becomes possible to play journalists even more easily. And they've done that many times, even with journalists who knew that they may have been targeted by a disinformation campaign. When the news value of a story is just so incredible and the story you know, may actually be completely accurate and true, then should you really care that a story was fed to you by an intelligence agency? Arguably, the answer is no. Well, that's... Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that when you do look at, again, I'm harping on the pedestal emails, but there was such a wealth of information of, you know, the internal communications of some very powerful democratic operative. So you looked at it and you, you were like, wow, this, this is endless. Some of the insights are pretty, pretty useful, even though there was a strong suspicion that this could be coming from Russian intelligence. Yeah, I mean, the, the paradigmatic story there is a, is a KGB leak that was uh, delivered about a, a special American special forces war plan in um, in the 1970s to Der Spiegel, uh, which is a German quality weekly newspaper, and Der Stern, which is also a weekly German newspaper, more sort of high, uh, lowbrow, uh, kind of like the Sun in the UK, um, with often with nudity on the cover and that kind of thing. So Der Stern told uh, turned the disinformation attempt into the story itself wrote about disinformation, and Der Stern uh, ran with a story, um, and actually as framed by KGB. Now, uh, they published at the same time, which created this fascinating situation that Der Stern now knew that they fell for a disinformation campaign. I think they knew all along, but they didn't care. But next, the KGB decided, okay, let's reward Stern and give them even more information, com this time completely accurate information, um, and uh, and they will run and publish it, knowing that it has been authenticated as a proper intelligence file sourced by KGB through an American spy, which is exactly what they did. So this is, in my mind, uh, the story is fascinating. I have it in my book with pictures. It is showing that you uh, that a competent intelligence agency can very clearly take advantage of inst of using the press. Uh, in, a, in a weird form of dance. And that there's there's a history of, the, of Russian intelligence actually doing that. Oh, I mean, th there's a long history. I mean, my entire book is full of stories of them doing that. This is, uh, this is there's an entire series of, of lectures and briefings that I discovered in Bulgarian archives that explain uh, how precisely to run these operations at scale. 
how to implement a two-stage proposal process uh, driven from the field because you need the local cultural grassroots knowledge, so to speak, and then authorized at the center, adding more details in the field, and then pushed out um, with force. That is fascinating. It's something to think about now. I mean, okay, we can talk about the elephant in the room, which is the modern plague of coronavirus and the pandemic we're all sitting in. And, I, and I'm not, I'm still trying to make sense of this myself when it comes to this question, but how do you think intelligence agencies are looking at this uh, from a disinformation point of view, whether it be spreading lies or just taking advantage of some of the some of the panic that is surrounding it? That's a very tricky uh, situation, the coronavirus and disinformation, obviously. Um, there is the coronavirus situation, obviously full of uncertainty and fear and even outright panic, um, is of course easy to exploit, but at the same time hard to exploit well. What I mean by that is that there is a naturally occurring you know, high density of organic conspiracy theories out there. So anything that an intelligence agency will add, can add to this or some troll farm or a contractor that's running influence operations, it's really difficult to move the needle and to have a big impact on the conversation. What I could think of here potentially is to mess with the origin story. Where did the virus originate? Um, possibly, you know, that, that's a, that, that's very murky. I could see that being an interesting target. But in a way, the coronavirus situation is not an ideal target for a disinformation operation because it's too big. It's it's very difficult difficult to make a difference. I also think to myself as well, part of the reason I thought, and there were some, there was some very early talk of, of Russian influence on the coronavirus reporting coming out of RT that some, some publications were running with. But one thing I thought of was, you know, this, the thing about this, this virus is that it's also, if you start spreading disinformation and creating a lot of, a lot of uh, confusion around, around what it is, how to deal with it, et cetera, this could then be turned back against your population. And this almost seems too, this almost seems too serious to risk that for. Um, yeah, yeah, yes. But I mean, it's important to keep in mind that historically, um, disinformation is something that you see in non-democratic regimes. Um, basically, it's historically speaking, it's impossible to be good at democracy and disinformation at the same time, which is why the YCIA pulled back from this, what they called political warfare game of large, with large scale forgeries in the late 1950s and early 1960s, as you know, intelligence oversight was slowly maturing throughout the 60s and 70s, um, the US intelligence community sort of retreated from political warfare, not completely, but to a very significant degree. And I think that is a positive development. One thing that I have heard uh, through my own reporting, I do, I do a lot of reporting on uh, domestic terrorism, domestic terrorist groups that have sort of this international connection to, to Eastern Europe, particularly the Azov Battalion in Ukraine, and also connections to Russian neo-Nazi organizations. And one thing I, th I think that is possible about this round of the elections is that Russia has done an excellent job of sowing political chaos from the first time round of Trump's presidency. And now I see the possibility for them to potentially be sponsoring sort of homegrown actors, even if the homegrown actors don't even realize that they are being 
manipulated by Russian intelligence. Do you think that is something that we could see as a possibility that you have people on the ground here doing things for Russian intelligence that they don't necessarily know they're doing? It's certainly a thinkable possibility. We've seen some of that in the past, but I think really what matters most here, matters greatly, if not the most here, is to judge and analyze disinformation campaigns when we discover them, uncover them as thoroughly and as closely driven by the evidence as possible. Basically, I discovered at some point during writing this book that I run a double risk of becoming a useful idiot. The first risk is by understating the threat, and the second risk is by overstating the threat. Both ultimately is in the interest in the of the adversary. And I think right now we are collectively, uh, certainly the you know, the people like you and me and here in DC, we are closer to the second risk. We are closer to the risk of overstating how good the Russian intelligence community and the IRA ha were and possibly are. Um, I don't actually think any of the operations that we've seen in the past five years are terribly impressive or indeed impactful. Do you think that the United States is at greater risk of any more disinformation come November than they were in 2016, say? Uh, no, not. At, I don't think they're at greater risk. They're certainly still at risk, but 2016 in some ways was the perfect storm to exploit, also because nobody expected this to happen. And uh, I remember I was one of the people warning early of what was going on, and nobody really listened to us. That that came only in, in October when it was already basically too late. Um, so I think having all the eyeballs on disinformation right now certainly helps. Um, but again, um, the risk isn't just understating the problem or ignoring it. The risk is also overstating the problem. Let's spell this out in a sort of brutal fashion. Blaming domestic problems on foreign interference is something that happens in weak and weakening democracies, happens in Turkey, happens in Russia itself. Once it starts happening in the United States, I begin to be worried. Right. It's almost like a, it's the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. Well, on that, on that extremely optimistic note, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Really appreciate it. This is going to be a developing story over the course of the next, next few mm -hmm. months. This is, uh, your book has come out at the right time. Well, thanks so much. Take care. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jessel? Benny boy, hello. 
I said your name in French. I don't think I've ever done that. Jason, comment ça va? What, what is yours? What is yours? I went to France last year. Can you, ima can you imagine going anywhere? It was incredible. Yeah, I literally going to Manhattan right now seems like a fucking experience. But uh, uh, but my name in French. Je m'appelle Jason. Je, okay, yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, je m'appelle okay. Benjamin. Benjamin. Ah, I see. I see. My first job uh, was as a fact checker for Washingtonian Magazine in DC, and mm -hmm. um, the job was like you know make sure everything in the magazine was correct. So I had to used to have to call up. Uh, you know, restaurants and ask them if their menus were correct, uh, if they still had certain dishes on, on the menu, et cetera, et cetera. And <laughs> one, like I was, I was very young. I was like 18. I didn't talk on the phone all that much at the time. And it was like, it, it got me over my fear of talking on the phone because I just had to call up people and like ask questions all day. In mm -hmm. any case, I called up this French restaurant and I was like, Hey, uh, can I talk to your sommelier? And the guy, the guy on the other, the other end of the phone just like laughed and laughed and laughed. And everyone who was around me who heard me say that laughed and laughed and laughed. And it was like, <laughs> I don't know. How, how the hell would I know? <laughs> that's so, that's so, so American of you. Sommelier? It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, anyways, it's the most American shit no. in the game. You know, I, speaking of Americans, I heard you guys all love oil and you wrote a very good article on the, the plummeting oil price. Dude, I fucking love this story. Like, I uh, you love it. I, it's a great, it's a great piece. I I don't know anything about oil, and I don't know anything about commodities trading. But like, when earlier this week the oil futures market went below zero, I realized that I have more than negative money. Um, thankfully, I'm very thankful that I have money, and I was very curious what this even meant, and so. I used it as an excuse to call up a bunch of commodities traders. And the way that I did this was I went onto iTunes and I typed in commodities podcasts and just like <laughs> sent, I sent like 50 emails and, and three people got back to me. So I spent one day talking to commodities traders and oil industry analysts about what was happening and tried to write an explainer for like why the price of oil went negative and how can uh one person get said oil and i'm gonna try to do like a very brief explanation of of what the hell is going on yeah i was gonna say you know if you spent the day talking to commodities traders like i how did you get them off their like cocaine and lobster tours <laughs> so i mean basically i was just like look everyone is asking me can i buy a barrel of oil so that was the first question i asked it was like if I, if the price of oil is negative, how does one go get a barrel of oil? Like, can I have it shipped to me? And so there are essentially like two types of commodities markets. There's something called the spot market, which is where if you want to buy a barrel of oil, you buy it on the spot market. It's like a physical trade of a physical good. And then there's the futures market, which is where you are trading uh, contracts that are good for oil in the future, essentially. Okay. And these... So these all trade uh, on something that's known as the like New York Mercator Exchange Futures Commodities Market. Something to do with something to do with this. I forget off the top of my head. It's in the article, and it's like these operate on a monthly basis. So airlines and a bunch of other industries that need oil will buy oil futures to basically lock in the price of oil 
early on so that they can plan their business. But then there's also all these speculators who buy commodities futures so that they can make money. They're basically like speculating on the price of oil or the price of grain or the price of pigs or milk or what have you. And so one contract in the case of oil is worth 1,000 barrels of oil. So you would buy one oil contract and for, for say the month of May, which we're about to hit is worth 1,000 barrels of oil. And these contracts execute on a specific day every month. And that day was Tuesday um, for the May contracts. So it was Tuesday at 2.30 p.m. The market closes, and that's when these contracts execute. And so what's happened is you have all these people staying at home. They're not using any oil because they're not driving. No one's flying anywhere. No one's like power uses down and all, all this stuff. So no and, one's and, using oil. Not to mention you have Russia and Saudi Arabia Flooding going, the market with oil. Flooding the market and going to having a little bit of a barrel war, which didn't help things. We also have Canada and the United States like producing more oil than they've ever produced because of like Obama deregulation as well as Trump deregulation. So uh, there's like more oil than there's ever been. Canada's uh, got to get theirs, man. We got to get ours. It's the way exactly, it works. Exactly. So you have more oil being produced than has ever been made before and you have super low demand. And so... Uh, what you have is all these people who bought oil contracts in the past have no one to sell them to. Like what normally happens is like, oh, uh, you know, the month mm -hmm. is these contracts are about to execute. We need to sell them and we'll buy oil futures like further down the line so that uh, so that these contracts don't execute. So like when the contracts execute at that deadline, you then have to you're contractually obligated to go pick up this oil. Like you have to take the delivery of a thousand barrels of oil in <laughs> Cushing, Oklahoma. So it's like if you are a speculator, like you're some hedge fund dude who who like has a suit and lives in Chicago or New York, and suddenly you're stuck with uh, an oil contract. It's like what the fuck are you gonna do with forty two thousand gallons of oil? Uh, and so you have all these people who were like, I gotta dump these contracts, and no one was buying them because no one was using any oil, and so you had a situation where people like the, the price fell out the bottom because no one was wanting to take the oil and Cushing as well as a bunch of other places that store oil were, were running out of storage. Um, so literally there was like no place to put the oil. And so what was happening was you had all these traders who were like had contracts to have oil, but had no one to take the oil and had nowhere to put it. And so they were ending up having to pay people to take it on, uh, which is why it went negative. The very interesting thing about this is that uh, we found an oil tanker, like an oil tanker uh, boat ship <laughs> um, that was selling for like $20 million, which is, you know, a lot of money, but I don't know, in, in the ship market, perhaps not a lot. I'm not sure. That could hold, I don't know, like thousands of tons of oil and like if you did the math, it could hold at the lowest point, which was negative $40 per barrel, you would have gotten paid $40 million to take that oil on, which would have been enough to buy that boat and have $20 million left over to like figure out the logistics of, of actually getting the oil. Uh, we didn't do that, but it was a good uh, arbitrage opportunity, as they say in the uh, in the biz. <laughs> I love that you're becoming Wolf of Wall Street in just like one, one Dude, quick story, man. 
we're pivoting to commodities trading. I feel like I know everything there is to know about it now. My, no, my in- email inbox was like overflowing yesterday with people who were like, I have space to store oil if you want to buy some oil. And I was just like, dude. <laughs> no, I don't. In, like, in, in a different world, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this is something I'm actually, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on as well, but uh, Mr. Jordan Peterson did an excellent article on it. But it's how Facebook is going to be banning these anti-social distancing events, which are, I'm just going to come out on the record and say they're fucking stupid. And if you're doing it, you're a fucking idiot. And stop. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's very dumb. Very, very stupid. Very scary. Very dangerous. People are going to die. It's crazy how much media attention they're getting uh, because there are a lot Way, way, way. The vast majority of people are being very responsible and are staying home. But, you know, it's a it's a wild thing to see people protesting and holding up dumb signs like I need a haircut and defying the CDC and public health experts and so on and so forth. And a lot of this is fueled not just by. Well, it was fueled by like conspiracy theorists, like straight up, like anti-vaxxers, conspiracy theorists, the far right. And now it's become almost like a little bit mainstream, right? Like Fox News is just... Yeah, I, I don't I don't understand what the fuck the people think they're doing with this because it, it's... It, this is like... This is the vintage kind of shit that like... Listen, we all know I'm not American. This is the kind of shit that like people in other countries when they look at the States, they're just like, what are you doing? Why does this happen in America? Why does this occur? Why is this happening here? And it's like this this media machine that's trying to just scratch any support it can for the administration which is obviously not handling this this crisis very well is pushing this insane concept that is literally going to kill people it's like yeah. it's classic put, cut your nose off despite your face i don't i don't understand it like it's just this is this is what i'm saying this is the stuff other countries were looking at this and going like what the fuck man yeah, I, I saw a meme on Reddit the other day that was posted in the middle of the night and it was like, uh, Americans are asleep. And the, a me, the meme was just like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. You goddamn idiots. Um, so, I mean, in any case, uh, a lot of these protests were organized by right-wing groups. Uh, there was a good Washington Post article that found that a lot of these were like AstroTurf groups. Like they were just sort of put together by this weird... Uh, pro-gun rights like further right than the nra uh group but facebook like a lot of them were organized on facebook and facebook says that it's going to take down these events if they go against u.s government guidelines on safety and social distancing which is the right call but it's also like doesn't stop it from that didn't stop these from being organized and executed in the first place and there are more planned and it's like can facebook play whack-a-mole and get these things down before thousands and thousands of people see them and show up, you know, in person and cause this virus to, uh, to pop back up. Yeah. Well, it's just like Facebook doing the Lord's work all over again. Just all great things come from Facebook groups. Let me tell you. So this one's, uh, it's actually a little collab between us. Uh, we and found this is related to what we were just talking about. It is, a it's, little it's, bit, it's, yeah. it is, it's very much related to it. It, so I, I obviously am on the neo-Nazi terrorism beat. And I saw this actually, I saw this, this uh, 4chan post and it was, a, it was about how somebody claimed to have hacked the WHO and the Gates Foundation 
and then we're spreading the emails and passwords, in some cases, dates of birth as well, of these employees on, on various paste bins and 4chan sites or 4chan uh, pages. Mm -hmm. And we did our, a, a bit of a, a, a back check and it looks like, you know, a lot of these, these emails and passwords appeared on previous dumps, but nonetheless, it sort of illustrates how the far right online is trying to spread even more information and stir up sort of this 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 anger surrounding the Gates Foundation. Yeah, I mean, it's like vitriol. It's a threat. It's it's not cool. Um, we've seen basically this exact same tactic used before. Um, I believe Gamergate has done some stuff like this with games journalists in the past. Um, there's also been like I think there was like an ISIS hit list that came out one time that was based on various previous information dumps for of U.S. military members. I think that we saw something like that, you know, four or five years ago. It's uh, it's like extremely easy to do something like this. Uh, yes, so it it's is. not it's not technologically impressive in any way, shape or form. Like you can go download dumps of old passwords all over the Internet Um but as you said, it kind of fuels vitriol. It's you're able to um, convince a lot of people that these that this was hacked. Like right now, uh, Gates hacked is trending on Twitter, and of course, being the the conspiracy theory being that Bill Gates somehow like created or is making coronavirus much worse, which is just like come like so out there and outrageous. <laughs> just like what? What the fuck? And then and then like the WHO somehow having something to do with like a cover up with China, and it's just like, uh, it's it's just not great uh, that this stuff is spreading. However, um, yeah, we did a little bit of digging and found that every single username that we searched had been part of a previous breach. And one thing that's really important to note is that these previous breaches were breaches of things like Yahoo or Adobe or things that had nothing to do with the Gates Foundation. It's just that they used their Gates Foundation emails to sign up for those services. And so these were like old usernames and passwords that were associated with those websites, not with like the login to the Gates internal systems the Gates Foundation internal systems or anything like that. So there's very little chance that this is going to lead to any sort of further damage other than the misinformation and like implicit threat that it, that it represents. I, I can, I completely agree. And also, you know, it's, it's, it's worth noting that this, I mean, this is the reason for me, this story kind of popped out in my mind is that, you know, it, it showed up, on a far, far right terrorist connected Telegram channel that has, you know, links to Adam Waffen Division and the base. And it just sort of shows the level of which you have the far right trying to stir these exact conspiracy theories to sort of accelerate problems in society and to promote social chaos. And, you know, early on in this in this pandemic, I, I was doing a lot of reporting on how I thought accelerationists were going to use this. And I think the terrifying thing is, is that they are. And, you know, so far it's it's kind of working. Yeah, no, I mean, it is working. I think it's like you see more and more people showing up at these stupid protests like 
we were talking about it, which, uh, I mean, we always sort of talk about this sort of thing. So I don't, I don't think that we are necessarily amplifying it. Like this had already spread and was, uh, trending on Twitter by the time we wrote about it, but it's like part of the play is to get people talking about this and making uh, like making Gates foundation and WHO officials worry that people are after them and mm-hmm. distract them from, you know, the important work that they're doing. So it is, it, it does work. It's kind of like a, it's an age old disinformation tactic and um, sucks. <laughs> it does suck. And also I should say, uh, Washington post bit our story. So thanks Washington post. Anyway, <laughs> that, uh, that's, that concludes the cipher for this week. Jason, uh, stay safe. Yeah. Keep mango, I'm, keep mango out of the rain. I heard he doesn't like it. Oh my God. Yeah. He freaks the hell out. Uh, yeah, I will. I hope our listeners are staying home and, uh, faring well and we'll see them, uh, next week. Yes. Do not do if go to one of those dumb protests, stay safe and healthy. Bye-bye. Okay. This week's episode was produced by me, recorded by me, hosted by me, Ben Maku, and edited by the great Ricardo Contreras. You will be hearing from us next week, and everyone, please stay safe. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.